Now that you have read about what college rankings really tell us, and we have pulled out some of the important things that you should be doing as a thinker and reader and interpreter of findings as you consider bias, it's time for you to think more deeply about this as you apply those skills to this article by Gould in Women's Brains. So as we learn about him, he um, has now passed. He was born in 1941 and lived until 2002. Stephen J. Gould, Ph.D., was a highly regarded paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and science writer. He was a professor of zoology and geology at Harvard University. Gould was not only considered an expert by his scientific colleagues, but he was skilled in conveying complex scientific ideas to the general public. So in that way, he is similar to Gladwell because he's able to take these complex ideas and say them in a way that people can understand. He was well known for his work to push beyond Darwin's theory of natural selection and for his insights and arguments regarding the impact of incidental and non-selectionist factors in evolution. He wrote more than 300 essays, many of which were featured in National Natural History magazine, dozens of books, more than 1,000 scientific papers. Women's Brains, the next text you will consider in this unit study, is an essay from one of Gould's first books, The Panda's Thumb, More Reflections on Natural History. This is published in 1980, Women's Brains by Stephen J. Gould. Before we begin, I want you to go ahead and stop and reread the insights that you had from understanding how you should respond as a thinker to research and bias. And remember that your assignment is going to be this. Both of these texts really talk about the topic of bias and assumptions that people make in research. And the important part for you is when you see these things in the rest of your life, that you're able to have clear and specific advice about what you need to be thinking about when you weigh and consider research findings that keep you from being... Um, misunderstood and keep you from making some conclusions that really could be harmful. In the prelude to Middlemarch, George Eliot lamented on the unfulfilled lives of talented women. And now we have a block quote from Eliot's work. Some have felt that these blundering lives are due to the inconvenient in definiteness with which the supreme power has fashioned the natures of women. If there were one level of feminine incompetence as strict as the ability to count three and no more, the social lot of women might be treated with scientific certitude. That sounds insulting to me. <laughs> Eliot goes on to discount the idea of innate limitation. But while she wrote in 
1872, the leaders of European, I've never seen this word before, anthropometry, anthropometry, these leaders of European anthropometry were trying to measure with scientific certitude the inferiority of women. Think about it, y'all. They were trying to figure out how they can scientifically prove that women are inferior to men. Okay, here's what anthropometry or measurement of the human body is not so fashionable a field these days, but it dominated the human sciences for much of the 19th century and remained popular until intelligence testing replaced skull measurements as a favored device for making insidious comparisons among races, classes, and sexes. Now, can you imagine they're measuring people's head to determine how smart they are? Craniometry, or measurement of the skull, commanded most attention and respect. It is its unquestioned leader, Paul Broca, from 1824 to 1880, professor of clinical surgery at the Faculty of Medicine in Paris, gathered a school of disciples and imitators around himself. Their work, so meticulous and apparently irrefutable, exerted great influence and won high esteem as a jewel of 19th century science. So one of the things you do whenever you're thinking about things is comparing time periods. In the previous page, we have George Eliot in 1872 writing about the 19th century where they were studying this inferiority of women much later after this guy even died. And so this idea seemed to continue to propel itself throughout that 19th century beliefs. Broca's work seemed particularly invulnerable to refutation. Had he not measured with the most scrupulous care and accuracy? Indeed he had. I have the greatest respect for Broca's meticulous procedure. His numbers are sound, but science is an inferential exercise, not a catalog of facts. Numbers, by themselves, specify nothing. All depends on what you do with them. Broca depicted himself as an apostle of objectivity, a man who bowed before facts and cast aside superstition and sentimentality. He declared that there is no faith, however respectable, no interest, however legitimate, which must not accommodate itself to the progress of human knowledge and bend before truth. Women, like it or not, had smaller brains than men and therefore could not equal them in intelligence. This fact, Broca argued, may reinforce, may reinforce a common prejudice in male society, but it is also a scientific truth. L. Manovrir, a black sheep in Broca's field, rejected the inferiority of women and wrote with feeling about the burden impressed upon them by Broca's numbers. Women displayed their talents and their diplomas. They also invoked philosophical authorities. 
but they were opposed by numbers unknown to Condorcet or to John Stuart Mill. These numbers fell upon poor women like a sledgehammer, and they were accompanied by commentaries and sarcasms more ferocious than most misogynist imprecations of certain church fathers. The theologians had asked if women had a soul. Several centuries later, some scientists were ready to refuse them a human intelligence. Wow, powerful words. Broca's argument rested upon two sets of data, the larger brains of men in modern societies and a supposed increase in male superiority through time. His most extensive data came from autopsies performed personally in four Parisian hospitals. For 292 male brains, he calculated an average weight of 1,325 grams. 140 female brains averaged 1,144 grams for a difference of 181 grams, or 14% of the male weight. Okay, I've got a question the numbers. They didn't even have the same number of brains, but yet they wanted to do a percentage. That doesn't make sense to me. Broca understood, of course, that part of his difference could be attributed to the greater height of males. Yet he made no attempt to measure the effect of size alone and actually stated that it cannot account for the entire difference because we know, a priori or beforehand, that women are not as intelligent as men, a premise that the data were supposed to test, not rest upon. That's interesting. Um, this a priori consideration right here, he's trying to prove this, but yet he's basing his proof on an assumption that is the same as the thing he's trying to prove. So the logic is something that you've got to look to in how people come up with their interpretations or the design of their research study. It's going to be really important for you to really think about the logical reasoning and how people came about their thoughts. And that's one of the things that the author here is pointing out, that mm, something's not quite right. So now we're on page 38, and there is an excerpt in here from Broca's writing. We might ask if the small size of the female brain depends exclusively upon the small size of her body. Tiedermann has proposed this explanation. But we must not forget that women are, on the average, a little less intelligent than men, a difference which we should not exaggerate, but which is nonetheless real. We are therefore permitted to suppose that the relatively small size of the female brain depends on part upon her physical inferiority and in part upon her intellectual inferiority. Well, talk about the reasoning that you have to examine about how he came to believe these things really needs to be tested. And you've got, it's so important for you to be able to think about how people came to their conclusions and evaluate the veracity of that, the truth. 
I'm at the bottom of the page of page 38. In 1873, the year after Eliot published Middlemarch, Broca measured the cranial capacities of prehistoric skulls from Lome Mort Cave. Here, he found a difference of only 99.5 cubic centimeters between males and females, while modern populations range from 129 to 220.7. Toppenard, Broca's chief disciple, explained the increasing discrepancy through time as a result of different evolutionary pressures upon dominant men and passive women. The man who fights for two or more in the struggle for existence, who has all the responsibility and cares of tomorrow, who is constantly active in combating the environment and human rivals, needs more brain than the woman whom he must protect and nourish, the sedentary woman, lacking any interior occupations, whose role is to raise children, love, and be passive. In 1879, I just got to stop and comment on that. The other thing we talked about in the Gladwell article is that you look for things that others have said that agree with that research or the ones that don't agree. And in this case, when you follow the reasoning, um, it doesn't always mean that the findings are correct just because there's someone else who agrees with it. In 1879, Gustav Lebon, chief misogynist of Broca's school, used these data to publish what must be the most vicious attack upon women in modern scientific literature. No one can top Aristotle. I do not claim his views were representative of Broca's school, but they were published in France's most respected anthropological journal. Laban concluded, In the most intelligent races, as among the Parisians, there are a large number of women whose brains are closer in size to those of gorillas than to the most developed of male brains. This inferiority is so obvious that no one can test it for a moment. Only its degree is worth discussion. All psychologists who have studied the intelligence of women, as well as poets and novelists, recognize today that they represent the most inferior forms of human evolution, and that they are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilized man. They excel in fickleness, inconstancy, absence of thought and logic, and incapacity to reason. Without a doubt, there exist some distinguished women, very superior to the average man, but they are as exceptional as the birth of any monstrosity, as, for example, of a gorilla with two heads. Consequently, we may neglect them entirely. <laughs> My gosh, I can't imagine him saying something like that nowadays. Nor did LeBron shrink from the social implication of his views. He was horrified by the proposal of some American reformers to grant women higher education on the same basis as men. And here we have his response. A desire to give them the same education and as a consequence to propose the same goals for them is a dangerous chimera. 
the day when misunderstanding the inferior occupations which nature has given her, women leave the home and take part in our battles. On this day, a social revolution will begin, and everything that maintains the sacred ties of family will disappear. Sound familiar? I have re-examined Broca's data. The basis for all this deliberate derivative pronouncement, and I find his numbers sound, but his interpretation ill-founded, to say the least. The data supporting his claim for increased difference through time can be easily dismissed. Broca based his condition, tension, his contention on the samples of from Lomort alone. Only seven male and six female skulls in all. Never have so little data yielded such far-ranging conclusions. And again, we talked about this before in the Gladwell article, that you really want to have a large sample size to be able to make some far-ranging conclusions, such as the one that Broca was trying to make here. In 1888, Toppenard published Broca's more extensive data on the Parisian hospitals. Since Broca recorded height and age, as well as brain size, we may use modern statistics to remove their effect. Brain weight decreases with age, and Broca's women were, on average, considerably older than his men. And just like we talked about in the Gladwell article, you want to be really measuring kind of the same thing. And that was a variable that really could have caused the discrepancy. Brain weight increases with height. And his average man was almost half a foot taller than his average woman. I used multiple regression, a technique that allowed me to assess simultaneously the influence of height and age upon brain side. And in an analysis of the data for women, I found that at average male height and age, a woman's brain would weigh 1,212 grams. Correction for height and age reduces Broca's measured difference of 181 grams by more than a third to 113 grams. I don't know what to make of this remaining difference because I cannot assess other factors known to influence brain size in a major way. Cause of death has an important effect. Degenerative disease often entails a substantial diminution of brain size. This effect is separate from the decrease attributed to age alone. Eugene Schreider, also working with Broca's data, found that men killed in accidents had brains weighing on average 60 grams more than men dying of infectious diseases. The best modern data I can find from American hospitals records a full 100-gram difference between death by degenerative arteriosclerosis and by violence or accident. Since many of Broca's subjects were very elderly women, we may assume that lengthy degenerative disease was more common among them than among the men. More importantly, modern students of brain science still have not agreed upon the proper measure for eliminating the powerful effect of body size. Height is partially adequate, but men and women of the same height do not share the same body build. 
Weight is even worse than height because most of the variation reflects nutrition rather than intrinsic size. Fat versus skinny exerts little influence upon the brain. Maneuver took up the subject in the 1880s and argued that muscle mass and force should be used. He tried to measure this elusive property in various ways and found a marked difference in favor of men, even in men and women of the same height. When he corrected for what he called sexual mass, women actually came out slightly ahead in brain size. Thus, the corrected 113-gram difference is surely too large. The true figure is probably close to zero and may as well favor women as men. And 113 grams, by the way, is exactly the average difference between a 5 foot 4 inch and a 6 foot 4 inch male in Broca's data. We would not especially, we would not, especially us short folks, want to ascribe greater intelligence to tall men. In short, who knows what to do with Broca's data? They certainly don't permit any confident to any confident claim that men have bigger brains than women. I am on page 43, bottom paragraph. To appreciate the social role of Broca and his school, we must recognize that his statements about the brains of women do not reflect an isolated prejudice toward a single disadvantaged group. They must be weighed in the context of a general theory that supported contemporary social distinctions as biologically ordained. Women, blacks, and poor people suffered the same disparagement, but women bore the brunt of Broca's argument because he had easier access on women's brains. Women were singularly denigrated, but they also stood as surrogates for other disenfranchised groups. As one of Broca's disciples wrote in 1881, men of the black races have a brain scarcely heavier than of a white woman. This juxtaposition extended into many other realms of anthropological argument, particularly to claims that anatomically and emotionally, both women and blacks were like white children, and that white children, by the theory of recapitulation, represented an ancestral, ancestral primitive adult stage of human evolution. I do not regard as empty rhetoric the claim that women's battles are for all of us. Maria Montessori did not confine her activities to educational reform for young children. She lectured on anthropology for several years at the University of Rome and wrote an influential book entitled Pedagogical Anthropology, English Egyptian, 1913. Montessori was no egalitarian. She supported most of Broca's work and the theory of innate criminality proposed by her compatriot, Cesar Lombroso. She measured the circumference of, her, of children's head in her schools and inferred that the best prospects had bigger brains. But she had no use for Broca's conclusions about women. She discussed Maneuver's work at length and made much of his tentative claim that women, after proper correction of the data, had slightly larger brains than men. Women, she concluded, were intellectually superior, but men had prevailed heretofore by dint of physical force. 
since technology has abolished force as an instrument of power, the era of women may soon be upon us, she states. In such an epoch, there will really be superior human beings. There will really be men strong in morality and in sentiment. Perhaps in this way, the reign of women is approaching when the enigma of her anthropological superiority will be deciphered. Woman was always the custodian of human sentiment, morality, and honor. This represents one possible antidote to scientific claims for the constitutional inferiority of certain groups. One may affirm the validity of biological distinctions, but argue that the data have been misinterpreted by prejudiced men with a stake in the outcome, and that disadvantaged groups are truly superior. In recent years, Elaine Morger has followed this strategy in her Descent of Women, a speculative reconstruction of human prehistory from the point of from the woman's point of view, and as farcical as more famous tall tales by and for men. I prefer another strategy. Montessori and Morgan followed Broca's philosophy to reach a more congenial conclusion. I would rather label the whole enterprise of setting a biological value upon groups for what it is, irrelevant and highly injurious. George Eliot well appreciated the special tragedy that biological labeling imposed upon members of disadvantaged groups. She expressed it for people like herself, women of extraordinary talent. I would like to apply it more widely, not only to those whose dreams are flouted, but those who never realize that they may dream. But I cannot match her prose. In conclusion, then, the rest of Eliot's prelude to Middlemarch. The limits of variation are really much wider than anyone would imagine from the sameness of women's coiffure and the favorite love stories in prose and verse. Here and there, a signet is reared uneasily among the ducklings in the brown pond and never finds the living stream in fellowship with its own orary-footed kind. Here and there is born a St. Teresa, foundress of nothing, whose loving heartbeats and sobs after an unattained goodness tremble off and are dispersed among hindrances instead of centering in some long, recognizable deed. <laughs>